What's up, everybody? I'm JJ John J. Stramski. And I'm Jason Goff. And if you haven't heard, The Ringer has gone local. I'm bringing the fire. I'm bringing the rain from the Big Apple with my show, New York, New York. And I'm repping Chi-Town with my new show, The Full Go on All Things Chicago. We've got episodes three nights a week with all the reaction to the local teams and guests. Plus bonus episodes around all the big games and storylines. So whether you're uptown, downtown, in the burbs, or a transplant. Make sure you follow New York, New York, and The Full Go on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected. Subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Welcome to the Ringer Gambling Show. This is the Super Bowl recap and also the 2021 season end of year in review show. I am joined by two strong Super Bowl bettors who I think did really well betting the Super Bowl. That is, of course, Ben Solak from the Wednesday show and Joe House from the Friday show. We are back in the threesome fashion here on this show. Uh, Gentlemen. How did you do in the Super Bowl? We're going to break it down. Uh, but first, I'll go ahead and start with you, House. Was it a good day for the House household? Sharpie, I am, on the one hand, here in my usual podcast studio, a.k.a. the attic, here in Northwest Washington, D.C., which means I did not hit my 120 <laughs> to 1 exact score bet, which, you know, I we... I had it out there, 31 to 17. And, you know, through the first quarter, I was like, oh, you know, why not? Let's let's keep dreaming. There's still to keep that dream alive. Uh, the mixed extra, missed extra point um, put a little bit of a damper on that. But the missed extra point also uh, presented the, the, the landing strip for the first half under, which was a giant um, W for the house household. We put the first half under in a parlay alongside with the Rams winning the Super Bowl. So that that was a big fat cash. And on the day, the house household went uh, 16 and nine across size totals, parlays, teasers, and props. And a lot of those props were me tailing this gentleman right here, Ben Solak. Thank you, Ben Solak, for for all of the, the yeah. hard work. I mean, the T. Higgins... Uh, 
longest reception over was especially delightful to kick off the second half. Yeah, Higgins' longest reception, Higgins over 100, Higgins' multiple touchdowns, all those hit for us, which was delightful. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the Cam Akers rushing prop war, in which we gave a lot of talk in the A block on that Wednesday show. And I, 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 if you had set the line at 14, I would have taken the over or whatever it was he ended with. Um, but that was a that was a good one for me as well. It's funny. It was a it was a nice day win percentage wise. I, I had the under, which I talked about on on last week's Wednesday show, which was the first bet that I took. But I made that mistake of just getting too confident in a spread instead of the the totals, and I had more than a unit on Rams minus four. And once they missed that extra point, I was like, oh, this is going to go badly for me. Uh, and so it was so it was it was spoiled by poor bankroll management. Uh, it was a very good Sunday. We ended up in the black, but it was it was spoiled by poor bankroll management where I just wanted too big of a pie on the spread in the Super Bowl. And I put more money down than I, I, I was confident in my projection for the Rams and thought they could win. I had Rams alts as well, just like kind of on the sprinkle. But th- that that was dumb. And so props were great. Total was great. Spread, not so much. So you guys both ended up winning money, which is great because the stuff that you share on the show ultimately is the stuff that people are betting. I was in a similar boat, 14-7-2 on the Super Bowl, um, and a couple long shots. Uh, we did well on the National Anthem. That was like a, a, just a fun bet to have. Dan, you can't really get down much money on that. But in terms of player props, did really well on those as well. I think one of my best props that was a little bit more of a long shot, I don't know if I'd consider it a true long shot, but it was total players to have a pass attempt over two and a half at plus 170. What yeah. was there, four players that. that actually attempted to pass there? Because you had five, if you're counting Johnny yes, Hecker. Okay, so, uh, so five, five, <laughs> yeah, five yeah. in total there. That was a little bit uh, wild. The, um, the first half under was like, we all were liking the under in this game in general. Yeah. Um, and the Bengals to the Bengals ultimately, you know, did well enough to cover this spread. I do wonder though, and I want to talk about this now that we've kind of shared that because we all did well. I'm guessing the listeners all did well, and a number of them have reached out in the DMs and or or shared stuff about the podcast in a response to one of my tweets. And I think these guys loved loved it and loved the show and made money on the Super Bowl. So that's really what the goal of this thing is: is to share stuff that's going to help teach you guys and help you make money. Um, but with regard to the Super Bowl itself and the game itself, um, I, I truly believe if Odell Beckham never gets hurt, this game is probably not nearly, uh, this, this game goes the way that Ben needed it to go, which is the Rams are probably winning yeah. by seven to Though 10 points. I wouldn't have had 19 chances for Van Jefferson over 17 and a half to hit. Now, obviously, it still ended up not hitting, but that was the exact game I thought I would get. Not the Odell injury, but just in terms of like him on the longer shots, him isolated against man coverage, everything to a T. I just need him to catch one freaking pass, but that doesn't, we're over that now. It's fine. It was a good day. Yeah. So let's talk a briefly about the Super Bowl and some things that surprised us um, or you know, that we that we noticed that we kind of anticipated going in and that that really made an impression on us. I'll go ahead and start. And that's one of the things that you mentioned, Ben, and that was, can the Rams run the football here? Will Cam Akers and all the Rams running backs be able to run the football here? And I think regardless of how they ended up going about it, it wasn't going to work for them. It, it was not just that they were playing tough run defenses, and now they went up against the Bengals' run defense that was terrible. Um, I think that the Bengals, mm-hmm. 
to some extent, were just overplaying, if not just overmatching the Rams' O-line. They did such a good job of stopping those early down runs. But part of it, to me, there has to be some element of the predictability of Sean McVay. And they basically knew what the Rams were looking to establish here. How else can you view it as anything other than predictable when you have five first downs in the first quarter for the Rams and every single one of these is a running back handoff? After the first couple, it's like, okay, they're looks like they're going to just run the ball. Third one, run. Fourth one, run. Fifth one, run. Like every single time. And we're at home watching it. Ben's at the stadium watching it. Uh, you know, the Bengals, Lou and Rumo's on the other sidelines watching it. Everybody in the stadium is watching it and knows that this is going to happen. And yet Sean McVay still looked down at his play sheet. Oh, yep, this looks like a good one. Let's call another Cam Akers run on first down. And those runs gained 1.2 yards per carry, minus 0.54 EPA per attempt, 0% success. And that's with Odell Beckham out on the field. You know, some of those runs were into six-man boxes as well, and they still weren't working. And yet, for whatever reason, throughout the course of the game, I understand that there were some issues with cluster injuries at the quote-unquote receiver position. You had wide receiver cluster injuries, and you had your tight end cluster injuries. And what I mean by that is that, you know, obviously Odell Beckham is replacing Robert Wood. So you're already down your number two wide receiver, and then Odell goes down. So you're now you're down two of your top three wide receivers. Uh, at the tight end position, you're already down Tyler Higby, and then your number two tight end who's going to be catching balls for you, he goes down during the game as well. So you're down a number of quote-unquote receivers for your team's offense, so you may have to rely a little bit more on other things. But these runs on early downs the entirety of game, 17 early down running back runs, 1.9 yards per carry, minus 0.53 EPA per attempt, 18% success. So all I'm asking you for this one, Ben, make some sense of this to me. Why do you think Sean McVay continued to pound his head into a brick wall? I get it. You come out with a game plan. You think maybe the run will work. I thought maybe the run would work. Other people maybe thought, hey, you're finally playing an easy run defense. The run might work. And then you have no success doing it. Why don't you pivot? Why do you continue to do this the way that Sean McVay was doing? Make some sense of it. Because uh, in the first half, Matt Stafford was four for five for 54 yards and a touchdown on under center play action dropbacks. Now, you know, and I know that you don't have to run the ball on first and 10 to get under center play action. Because when they when the Rams run the ball, they go under center. You don't have to run the ball on first and 10 to get the play-action yep. game to work on second and, and X and on third and X. You and I know that. Coaches don't as much. Uh, you can tell it to them in theory, but it still very much for them feels like they have to do that. That, that, that is a, a long, tried-and-true idea is you have to establish at least the threat of the run. You have to establish that you will run the ball in order to get the linebackers to move on play-action. Uh, it doesn't matter how poorly you run it. If you do it, it's going to open up the room for you on those play action dropbacks. It's worth noting that Stafford only averaged about six and a half uh, under center play action dropbacks during the regular season this year, which is like high for the league, but very low for Sean McVay. Usually they ran play action a lot more. So only averaging six and a half in a game and then having five in the first half tells me that coming in, they knew they wanted to get those throws. And in McVay's head, in order to get those throws, you have to execute those runs. The Rams running game was abysmal. But if you check out like the advanced box score uh, for like rbsdm.com, it's Ben Baldwin's site. Uh, the Rams had a 12% success, uh, 12, excuse me, they had 12 series that started with a run. And on 83% of those series, so 10 of the 12, they were successful in converting to a new first down, 
which was far greater than their passing downs. They had 15 first downs. It was a passing down. Only 53% of those converted to a new first down. So for the Rams, the running game didn't work. But it kind of did because they got what they wanted. And they were getting the, the play action. And they got a touchdown off it. And it was the whole plan. And then they got to the second half because those, those four or five numbers were first half. Then they got to the second half, and the play-action game was really struggling as well. Uh, the Bengals' defense did a better job adjusting to that, and were still able to defend the run without uh, dedicating as many resources to that, at which point the Rams had three straight three and outs. That was also when Kendall Bland, like you brought up, the tight end went down. and Bland was their blocking tight end. Bryce and Hopkins was their third tight end. Cam Block were the legs. They were really in trouble with that under-center condensed set play-action stuff. Then they went and spread, and they were able to get the ball enough down the field to score that game-winning touchdown. It was a shockingly late adjustment there, like six minutes left in the fourth quarter. We could have done that a little bit earlier, but overall, McVay got to his spot. So I wasn't surprised to see that they continued to believe in the running game, given the fact that it's how McVay thinks he needs to get to that bucket in terms of the, the under-center play-action passing game, and that that passing game was working so well for him. Yeah, the one thing that I always look back on games or like when I'm, when I'm anytime I'm talking to coaches about big games is start, like make sure that at some point in the preparation, we get to a spot where we, where we ask ourselves this question. If we were to lose this game because of something that we were doing, what will we look back on you know, during this off season and say, fuck, we shouldn't have been doing this as much. Like, what is the one thing that we might regret looking back that would stand out the most to us that we would regret and look back on and say, fuck, why did we try to do that? Like we were doing it. And I legitimately think in this, in this particular game, number one, I thought like overusing Daryl Henderson in his first game back could have been something that Sean McVay did. And like it, 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 failed and so that wasn't was going to cause some problems but that didn't end up happening it, it really was uh overuse of the run game in my opinion and they barely they barely got this game all right we saw that penalty on third was it third and eight that gave them a new set of downs late in the game and then they scored the touchdown like a play or two after that um they, like they mm -hmm. they almost they almost were a fourth and eight and could have lost this game it was it was a great game from that respect it was very competitive uh and close house what stood out to you in terms of something that you were watching that like was a little bit surprising from your perspective? So in that second half, I had to start preparing myself psychologically for the Rams losing this football game. And for Joe Burr, what are they calling him now? Joe Shiesty? Is that it? <laughs> I, I, he said he liked that nickname. You were asking the wrong like, I, He said yeah. he liked that nickname. So. He, he well in in any event uh, that he was going to be a, a Super Bowl champion and my concern was growing when the Rams had two consecutive you know beginning of possessions like just on the other side of the fifty yard line and both of those effing possessions ended up in punts and uh, I was like guys it's it's adjustment time it's time you know to 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 start mixing in. Some of the things that we've seen, um, you know, especially on the NFC side of mixing up the run game, you don't have to give Cam Akers the ball so he can fall into the line, you know, on, on the A gap or the B gap uh, 18 times. It is, uh, you know, been shown out there that the Rams are the only team in the history of the Super Bowl to have that poor a performance with the rushing game and to actually win the game. And I think that's both like on the raw numbers as well as the advanced metrics, the EPAs and all the, the the rest of, you know, the way that you measure the effectiveness 
of a run game. But to me, the surprising thing was like there was kind of a tale of two adjustments in the second half. We we've grown accustomed to the Bengals adjustments in on defense in the second half and them grabbing victory out of the jaws of defeat against both uh, the Titans and, and the Chiefs. They did not, the Bengals, have an answer on offense. And Sharp, you 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 hit this uh in your in your in your tweet string. Um Joe Burrow did not have any time. We all talked about this in the two weeks leading up to the Super Bowl. The single biggest mismatch on the board was the Rams defensive line up against the Bengals offensive line. And the numbers throughout the season, including the playoffs, of the effectiveness of Joe Burrow, if he even has two and a half seconds worth of, of, of time to, you know, see what's in front of him and try and make a, a play. And the Bengals never came up with a way for to, to provide him that time in the second half. And so that helped offset some of my concern about the Rams was the fact that I just there was no scenario it felt like other than the crazy fluky circumstances of the first two plays, basically of the second half, which was a T Higgins offensive pass interference touchdown and an interception that bounces off the fourth string or fifth string receivers hands into uh, the, the Bengals defensive uh, hands on the other side of, uh, uh, of the field. Solak wrote an unbelievable breakdown this week of um, what the Rams adjustment consisted of. <laughs> and Ben just said, hey, guys, you know, we might have made this this change a little earlier, but going to the spread offense that the the um, Rams went to and going with um, receivers and even balance two and two on, on either side and what that created in terms of opportunities for the Rams, um, that last six minutes was uh, very exciting for those of us who were on the Rams money line. So. The, t- the two adjustment piece of it um, was was kind of fascinating to me. Glad you enjoyed the piece, House. Thanks, man. <laughs> of course, of course. But Ben, I do want to ask you about this, the rush three drop eight. Uh-huh. Um, because based on charting that I've seen, only three dropbacks did the Bengals rush three drop eight. Um, Stafford do- did throw one touchdown and one interception against it. Uh, when they rushed the standard four, they held Stafford to 13 of 20, minus 0.10 EPA, 41% success, two sacks, and got a 32% pressure rate. And then when they blitzed him, Stafford was perfect going three of three, plus 0.82 EPA per attempt. I was a little surprised they didn't more use more uh, rush three drop eight uh, during the course of the game. The thing that didn't surprise me on the other side defensively is that the Rams did not need to blitz to get pressure. This is what kind of You discussed before the game. I discussed before the game on our preview pod. It was like the thing that I was saying I felt the most confident about anything in this game is that, you know, we talked about the mismatch of the O-line. Rams don't blitz, just don't blitz. You don't need to. Of course, when they blitzed, they did get more pressure. They had three sacks on nine dropbacks and had a 67% pressure rate. But when Joe Burrow did get the ball off, that's when he threw his touchdown. He threw the ball deeper down the field, 8.2 air yards per attempt versus 6.1 when they weren't blitzing. He had a plus 0.23 EPA when the Rams blitzed against negative 0.06 when the Rams did not blitz. Um, so they were better when they didn't blitz. So that was one thing I was expecting that was true. I was expecting more rush three drop eight and did not see it. Um, 
What did you think overall of Luan Arumo's defensive strategies here and the adjustments in the third quarter? Obviously, the Bengals, quote-unquote, won the third quarter. They outscored the Rams. They held the Rams to only three points in the third quarter. That was the best quarter. We talked about that going into the game, how great they were in these after-halftime adjustments. Talk to me a little bit about, about Luan Arumo and his defense and kind of how you felt he did this game. I was generally impressed with how he did, right? I think like a half of Cooper Cup's production came on that final drive, right? In general, they were getting brackets on him. They were playing him literally doubled up in man coverage. And some of that is Odell going down, right? Uh, when when Odell's there and you're trying to double up Cup in man coverage and you're leaving Eli Apple or Chidobia Wuze alone with Odell, the Rams typically hammer that matchup. They were doing so. Odell had over 50 yards already, like within the first couple of drives, and then he goes down, right? And so it was... It was a little bit they were paying the cost with Odell, and that's the problem with the Rams having two-star receivers. really hard to deal with that. But in general, they were doing better on cup than a lot of people do. They were doing a really, really good job of the running game, obviously, as we saw. And they were not falling into the blitzing trap, which at least gives them half credit, right? Uh, and understanding that, that if you blitz Stafford, he's going to make you pay. The thing with rush three, drop eight, we talked about this a little bit on the Ringer NFL show. We had on John May, who's the, the de facto DC of the, the Patriots. And I've talked about this a little bit with you when we talked about drop eight before, is that for whatever reason, and it's not for whatever reason, there's like you can, they'll talk about why, but for reasons, defensive coordinators are just scared to drop eight. They don't like it and they don't want to do it. It feels wrong. And the main reason why is because you're taking an edge rusher off of the field, typically, uh, on like a third and a and and seven plus, right? Like on a passing down, you can line up with one nose, two outside edge rushers, let both those guys rush and drop eight. So you get that on third down a little bit. On base downs, if you want to rush three, drop eight, you're essentially taking an edge rusher off the field because you have to line up with enough interior bodies to still be gap sound against the run. And so like when we talk about like college tight front and stuff like that, that's only one true edge rusher, one outside dude in the C-gap, outside of the tackle, who's going to be a traditional pass rusher. Coordinators just don't, don't like that. Defensive coordinators feel scared when they're in that position because it feels like you are... From the jump, pre-snap, surrendering the fact that you're not going to get a pass rush on. And in the modern NFL, that just feels really scary. That feels really, really touchy. College, they don't care. Like, yeah, we can't get to this guy anyway. Ball's coming out one and a half seconds. We're just going to make that make that exchange. The NFL, like these quarterbacks are so good, and quarterbacks can create on the scramble drill, right? Like you said, one touchdown, one interception. Uh, that was the the Jesse Bates pick on the Van Jefferson scramble drill throw from Stafford. Uh, that was a really bad play by Van. Van just gave Jesse Bates all the space in the world. He needed to get physical. He needed to go up to the catch point. If that's a better receiver, it's very realistic that there's three dropbacks of drop eight and two touchdowns scored, right? Like a good quarterback can go over the top on you. He can make scramble drill stuff happen. And it feels like you just need more, more pass rushers. It's a scary thing to do, especially against an immobile quarterback like Stafford. Like Mahomes and Josh Allen, like you, you rush three, drop eight, because you know they're going to scramble, and then you're going to kind of get a fourth guy ready and get like a spy ready. With Stafford, it's like he's just going to sit there in the pocket, five block and three. He'll take all the time in the world. So it, it coaches feel reticent to go all the way there. They, they are hesitant to go all the way to drop eight and commit to it. I think we see that hesitancy erode over the next couple of years of football, but that's kind of still where you are right now. And you have a guy in Lou who ran a ton of drop eight this year, ran more drop eight than anybody in that last two weeks ago game against the, the Chiefs. Still not really deploy it because it's just not a thing that coaches are comfortable really living on right now. I want real quick from each of you guys, 
a bet that you made for the Super Bowl, could be two bets, one or two bets that you made for the Super Bowl, that your process leading to that bet ended up being totally correct and you just wish you went harder on that bet. So something that you made that ended up being right, you just didn't, you just didn't go on it hard enough. Um, House, I'll start with you. Well, I'm very happy that I listened to my um, inner gut and went at, went forward with the Joe Burrow bully bets uh, and took Cincinnati plus the four, plus the four and a half when that line opened up, you know, right after on, on Sunday night and then into the first couple of days of the first week uh, after the conference championships because that that protected um, and covered off the the you know the fact that the line the Rams didn't cover and it was this really extraordinary circumstance you know the in the Super Bowl the straight up winner coming into this week um, was 47 six and two against the spread so like overwhelmingly the straight up winner also covers the spread and the same was true in these playoffs the only team that middled, What's the Rams? They middled against San Francisco and they middled this week. I mean, you know, in the, in the Super Bowl against the Bengals. So I was um, thrilled to have that in place. The only thing that I wish I'd, I'd had a little more exposure on, although I might have, um, I, I don't know if I would have been able to take the anxiety. I really believed in the under in this game. Um, and, you know, the the script for the under really mainly held true. I will say, the teams came out uh, in the first quarter looking a lot more comfortable than I anticipated, and they were on their scripts and and you know kind of moving the ball in a way that made me uh, uncomfortable. Um, but I hit on Odell Beckham at plus eight hundred as first touchdown score, so that was a big W. And as far as I'm concerned, the whole Super Bowl was a win for that reason. Yeah, I. Uh, it's funny, like I brought up the Van Jefferson over longest reception, seventeen and a half. Just looking at the box score in terms of eight targets, and I think I'm trying to find, I saw a tweet somewhere about air yards and I can't find it again, but I think it was like five of those targets were air yards over 17 and a half. I would make that bet again. Uh, I didn't know what the result was. It didn't cash because it didn't catch any of these long targets, but that's what you're looking for when you're betting a longest reception. You're looking for a guy who's going to get a high volume of high air yard targets and that's the, the, the this is the formula for it and so like it worked with T because obviously he gets the 75 yarder it doesn't work with Van honestly that's one of the things that makes betting longest reception uh yards tricky is that books don't give you alt lines and when you're betting them you'd rather bet them at plus money than bet them at straight money because like over 26 and a half for T Higgins I had a 75 yard reception you know what I mean like if I can get that up into plus money if they can give me like plus over 29 and a half then I can bet two of those in a game and feel confident that if I get one, I still end in the black on that. And so got the, the Van Jefferson one was good process. Cam Akers was one where I, we talked about it a lot, you know, not rehashing my process from the Wednesday show, but just with the amount of, of malice defeat in that backfield and with the the uh, estimation I had on the Bengals defensive tackle group against the Rams interior offensive line, um, I was I was healthy on Cam Akers under and I should have taken more. I was getting scared off by the fact that the line was going up during the week. And I was worried that there was there was you know a, a sharp angle that I was I was missing, um, but in general I, I wish I'd had a little bit more on that. Other than that, I wish I had less on the Rams, and I've been more strong on the props and then less strong on the side. That was my big mistake. Yeah, the Cam Akers. I will tell you this: the Cam Akers was a sharp bet mm-hmm. uh, by guys 
even even early in the week, that was one of the first ones that they gravitated towards. I personally never ended up getting on anything Cam Akers related, even though I felt compelled to, to believe. Like I always look for contrarian angles. The thing that, and I'm glad this happened, that got me off of it, that to just do nothing about that bet was the Daryl Henderson news that Sean McVay said, oh, we're going to have these three guys and they're all going to... And at that point, it was like you just said, too many mouths to feed there. And I started gravitating towards, okay, well, maybe maybe I'll go with just like a one-off, which would be like Cam Akers' first rush of the game over three and a half yards or Cam Akers' longest rush of the game over. Those bets split. The first rush did go over three and a half the second, but I didn't end up taking either of those. I just I just did nothing Cam Akers related. Um, but the one there, I'll, I'll go. I'll give a couple. The f- fun one was Rams to call the first time out. Like that that one I bet, and you know Sean McVay does this all the time. Uh, but there's no real like great handicapping angle to that. It's just like this is what this guy does. Look back at the numbers. He burns timeouts. So he's one of the worst in the NFL at doing that. Um, one that I got wrong and one that I got right uh, that I would bet again, uh, hardcore. Uh, the one that I got wrong, Bengals' first drive to be a punt. You know, if the Rams don't get, uh, have this terrible Matt, Matthew Stafford sack on second and 10 back at their 36 because they run on first down and get zero yards on it, and, and now they're in fourth and 20 and they're punting the ball from their own 26, setting up the Bengals with field position at the 42, that's when I started to get very nervous about that bet because I didn't see the Bengals scoring points there, but I was fearful about what actually happened. And that was you get close to midfield and you got fourth and short. And so you decide to just go for it. And I believe if they were 10 yards further back when they started right, that drive, yeah. they obviously didn't even get a first down. They went, they went three and out, but they had a third and one that they failed and gained zero yards on it. And because they were sitting with the ball at the 49 and fourth and one, smart of them to go for it, you should go for that situation. And they failed. I was obviously rooting for them to go for it and make it. So then I had the other opportunity for them to force a punt later on. But at any rate, they went, they turned it over on downs instead of punting the football. So I ended up losing that. That was minus 110. The one that I wished I put even more on and probably shopped even better because at the time I took this, it was plus 120. A DK, I could have gotten much better odds. I know other clients and other people got significantly better odds on the first scoring play by the Bengals to be a field goal. Um, that was at like plus 175 and other numbers. Other guys were sending me that they were able to get on that, but that obviously hit and I wish I had a little bit more and did a little bit better shopping on that one. Um, so by and large, the Super Bowl was a whopping success for all of us. And we got the double benefit in that it was a good game. It wasn't a blowout. It was competitive. It was interesting throughout. I wouldn't say it was necessarily a great game. Like, I, I felt like there was all these punts by the Rams. That became very frustrating. All the inability to uh, keep Joe Burrow upright just felt too predictable, like too following the script. I would have liked to see some some out-of-the-box things happen in the game that added to, I think, the excitement of it, more bigger plays and that type of thing. But just from an entertainment perspective, the game being close, coming down to the end of the wire, all the all the youngsters in various households around the country, if if it's anything like mine, you know, they were into it until the very end and 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 enjoying watching the game. So that was a ton of fun. Um I want to ask just in general if there was anything that you guys learned from the over the course of the season. What was some of the 
big picture, something that you enjoyed from this season, something that you would take away that you might apply to to the future, or just uh, if you don't have time to come up with something like that, just something that was the most enjoyable about the 2021 football season for you in maybe your general betting or the season in general? Uh, I'll start with you, House. So we, over these past couple of years, Sharpie, have you know um, had lots of conversations about different strategies on combination bets, teasers, and parlays, and, and all of that is always, um, for me, you know, in, in the form of sides and, and totals and, you know, the combinations of those things. One of the things that I quietly started building into my um, weekly strategy, and this was me listening to the Cheat Code podcast with you and Ben Solak, was player props and lay- layering in um, a little bit of extra leverage around, you know, the forecasted kind of game scripts and, and outcomes that we, you know, sort of talked ourselves into, I was just building in in a, in a small way, not very much of an allocation of the portfolio, um, you know, a couple player props here and there. And part of what I had to get over on that weekly basis was the, the general antipathy I have around player um, prop totals entering the football season. I am now a strictly underplay on um, player props ent- entering the season. And, and, and so when, when at the beginning of, of this 2021 season, Solak and, and, and you sharp are going through, you know, play various player totals and things that happen. Solak jumped all I was over about Jamar to say, Chase. Yeah, if you want to be uh, a preseason underbetter, right? Jamar Chase and Kyle Pitts, rookie top five picks, are <laughs> getting a thousand yard totals. Yeah, sure. It sounds great in theory in August. And then Jamar Chase is the greatest receiving unders, yards in history. Whatever. Yeah. Well, you, you have to be prepared to lose. You're not going to hit Ugh. them all. But that's what hit. That's that's what worked for me, right? That's that's also the attitude I think. And over the the balance of of how those things work out. The unders hit way more than than the overs. So, what I started to do this this up this past season that I intend to to build in a little bit more. Maybe I'll play less on my combo bets and and on totals and sides. Um, more more player props, and I'm not afraid of overs. I'm here to say on a weekly basis if it fits the script, if it fits, um, you know what my forecast is. What the model, I don't have a model, but what everybody else's model is suggesting in terms of potential outcomes, I'm going to keep playing overs on player props. I'm okay with it. Yeah, I also, looking back, I just, for the first time, I was say on my betting career, I'm like, not have a betting career. But I've been good on preseason totals, <laughs> uh, both win totals and player prop totals, up until this season. And this season, I just got hammered. Um, I went back and looked through my preseason uh, team win totals bets at the end of the regular season. Haven't talked about them to this point because they're really bad. Um, but like I, I had the Chiefs over 12 and they landed on 12. I had the Dolphins over nine and they landed on nine. I had the Steelers over nine and they landed on nine. I had the Bears over six and a half. They landed on six. I had the Eagles under seven. They landed at nine. I had the Bengals under six and a half. They were in the Super Bowl. They landed at 10. I had the Raiders over eight plus money, baby. Let's go. And then I also had the Titans under nine and a half and they landed at what the frick ever 12 and they were the number one seed in the AFC. Uh, this was a very chaotic season and I was really, really bad on uh, 
total wins. I went back and tried to understand why. I think I gave too much credence to my ability to rank defenses, especially when you look at teams like Chicago, when you look at teams like Pittsburgh, when you look at teams like the Dolphins, which were, I was 0-1-2 and on those, but I didn't make any money. It's because I thought all three of those defenses were being really underrated. And like with the Dolphins, they were, but it just doesn't matter enough. Uh, when when the offense is a problem. So I want to care about defense, I think, a little bit less when I do my, my preseason win totals. I know the defense isn't sticky, like, statistically, but it feels like, to me, like, watching film, I can understand it and find some edges, and I just did not hold true this year. And then, yeah, uh, I was going to bring up the Jamar Chase and Kyle Pitts, two season-long uh, receiving yard totals that I was very strongly under. And I hit some other good uh, 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 rookie props, right? I had Jalen Phillips over. I had Michael Parsons overs. I had uh, 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 Trevor Lawrence overs. Like I hit on all those. But those two receivers em- uh, emphasized to me that when a team picks a top 10 guy, they're going to find him volume. Uh, and even like Kyle Pitts like, didn't even get the volume that people were expecting in Atlanta. And still, uh, was enough to get over his total prop. And so adjusting for the extra game, I probably was a little bit weak there. And then adjusting for just how much a team's going to care about getting their top ten pick the ball, like Jamar Chase, I'll never forget this season. And just watching all the all the various like ESPN stats and info and, and next gen stats talk about this is the greatest receiving yards over expectation season in five bajillion years. I mean, like, all right, if it's a guy who's going to get like insane volume, I just have to accept the fact that sometimes they're going to catch this 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 unreal season. And listen, I'll be right back to fading the Bengals next year. I'll be under on win totals. I'll probably be under on Jamar Chase yards just because it'll be good process for me, but I shouldn't do it with the degree of confidence that I did preseason. Well, here's the question that I have for you, and then I want to follow up with a different question about a slightly different topic, but the Jamar Chase thing, how unique do you think that was simply because they had this college relationship and it was like the boy from back in the day, and so you wanted to like get him the football? I mean, that might not be the case for another player drafted there considering all the talent that they actually had at the wide receiver position, but it mm-hmm. felt like there was an added emphasis on it because of that chemistry and prior relationship. And, you know, you got a couple of routes that you could hit on this past play that you like and you're going to maybe kind of funnel it to the guy that you have a supreme confidence in because you've played with him before in college you think that yeah is unique about that it's definitely part of it in terms of the connection on the back shoulder stuff right like jamar chase had over 900 yards and he had 11 uh total touchdowns on throws outside of the numbers during the regular season both led the nfl he's he's 6'1 205 like he's not mike evans He's not like he's not T. Higgins. He's not built like guys that we typically see DeAndre Hopkins do in that area. Uh, and so because the build was wrong, I was like, there's no way this part of his game translates as cleanly to the league as the Bengals are hoping. But it turns out that Chase has a really unique and impressive knack for that ball. And Joe Burrow knows that, right? It's one thing to have the knack for it. You have to convince your quarterback that it's still worth throwing you covered to uncovered. So we're throwing you back shoulder when it looks like you're covered. Uh, it, he didn't need to convince Joe Burrow of that. I think, right, that's that's the thing I missed in terms of you're going to get that under if it's going to take the rookie six weeks to earn the the quarterback's confidence. doesn't take him any of that with Joe Burrow. In fact, it's even the opposite. Like, Chase was having drops in the preseason and in camp. Like, it was a documented thing. And Burrow threw him out of it, right? Burrow just kept chucking him the ball until he got back because Burrow had that level of faith in him. Yeah, and I think the reason I brought that up is simply this. Um, I don't know that that's going to be a situation we're going to run into very frequently throughout the next several years of of drafted quarterback uh, drafted wide receivers going to quarterbacks that worked with them in college, right? That's so unique here that like the process itself 
probably the, the, one of the stumbling blocks that occurred in this particular case. Your process in general will probably be very successful in the future. This was just that weird occurrence of a guy who worked with the same wide receiver in college. It's probably not going to happen uh, very frequently in the future. Although it was weird because it did happen with Tua um, this year as well. Although and Waddle, but that didn't uh, obviously have nearly the strong results. There were some injuries there. What was something that you loved about this season? Like, what was something that you you're going to take away that you enjoyed from this season, um, from like a betting perspective or like a process? Obviously, you're newer to getting into the betting space as compared to House and myself. Right. Um, what was something that you felt? that you did and you enjoyed it and you're definitely going to build on that next year. Yeah. Uh, this show, no, that's cute. But in, in reality, like because this show is on Wednesdays, I did a lot more work on early lines and accordingly was a lot better at getting CLV and prioritized getting CLV a lot more for people who don't regularly exist in the band, uh, the betting space, CLV over refers to closing line value. And what that essentially means is, is the line that you buy, better than the line that closes right before the game. So open Steelers as a three-point favorite against the Browns. I take Steelers minus three. Closes with the Steelers as a four-point favorite over the Browns. I have closing line value. I have a point of closing line value. And that point can help because a game might end a three-point game. And if everybody took line at four, they lose. And I push. And that makes me money in the long term if I'm consistently beating lines. And so on spreads and totals, this year, pure game spreads and game totals. Obviously, player props still come out a little bit later. Uh, props, props move around a lot more, too. So CLV is harder to track. Uh, I was 62% this year on bets in which I had CLV, which is a good number. It could have been better. Uh, at the week nine point, it was up in the high 60s. It was about 68.5%. And then the COVID run started to hit, and that really killed me. And I talked about that during the... Uh, during the time where I was like, I got to stop chasing early lines because I keep on like betting the Packers and then Aaron Rodgers isn't playing and I just didn't know that was going to happen. Um, but because this show was, was we, re- we record Wednesday mornings, uh, I was doing a lot more work getting CLV and that, w- that was big for me. And that was a part of my process that worked really well, especially on sides and totals. And I'm going to keep hitting next year, even if we're not recording at the same time. Yeah, no, 100% agree there. Um, closing line value, very important. For me, I think one of the things that I'm going to take away from this year that was a little bit more unique compared to years past is just um, if you have confidence in your process, it doesn't actually matter what you're betting um, as long as you have confident process in order to get there. And for me, historically, in years past, I was betting more overs. My, my totals are my bread and butter that's what I do the best at. And we had a banner year, the best year I've ever had in 15 years of doing this in terms of accurately forecasting totals using my computer model. But in the past, one of the marketing efficiencies that I was utilizing was I was betting a lot more overs, particularly in the 2020 COVID season where there were no crowds. And the Quarterbacks were able to make better adjustments at the line of scrimmage and get into plays and offensive linemen weren't jumping off sides and there was no inability to communicate there. That absolutely helped scoring offensively. And the refs were calling things a little bit differently. There were some penalty things that went on as well. I was on a even more overs than usual that year. This year, the pendulum swung completely in the other direction. And the vast majority of what we were getting on, and even early in the week, were unders. And yes, the public does tend to bet more overs. And so sometimes you have to be more careful about when you enter the market with an under 
bet because your goal is, like you said, getting the best line. And the challenge for what I do and the guys that I work with in my betting group is that, I said this before towards the beginning of the year, we aren't competing against the public. We aren't competing against the sports books even who are setting the numbers. Who I really feel we're competing against is other sharp betting groups out there that sometimes will cut in front of us and take better numbers. And that's what this game completely is. When you work with a group and you move a lot of money and you win is your competition is guys that are going to try to cut in front of you to get good numbers. And you have to figure out the optimal time to time the market. And every single week, I every literally every single week of the season, you know, we're going first on some things and they're like, oh, fuck those guys. Again, they beat us to a number. And there's games where they're beating us to it. And we're like, fuck, man, I hate these guys. Why did they bet it at that point in time? They should have waited a little bit because the line was moving in this direction and they're just firing based on when you know, their model is telling them to and they're not really paying close enough attention to you know, these injuries that are looming, the looming injury report, all these other factors that we were waiting on. They just cut in line to, to get a number and we miss out. And that will never change. It's the same with player props. It's the same with Super Bowl props. It's the same with totals in the NFL. It's the same with sides in the NFL. There's always going to be, when, when you're at the apex, like you're hunting and, and you're battling other apex predators as well. You're not like worried about like the, the, the public or the sports books because I feel like we always have good numbers. So we ended up having to be very careful about timing the market on these unders, but we did well. So I'm, I'm, I at first have always been, because I my overs have done so well. Usually less confident when I'm throwing out underplays, but the reality of it is the last like four years, looking back at my results, unders hit more accurately than overs even. Like they, the results end up being better. So we ended up playing a lot more unders this year and hitting on a lot more. And I definitely will look to do that again. Um, but timing the market is always crazy. Ben, I want to get into this with you because I want to start talking about this upcoming season. And you mentioned something that I want to hit on. And Hallis, I'm going to ask you the same question. The Cincinnati Bengals are the fourth strongest favorite to win the Super Bowl this upcoming season based upon the odds. Um, I feel like they went on somewhat of a story tale run to close out the season, right? Like they, the Raiders could have scored a touchdown at the end of that game and beat them in Cincinnati. The Titans had the ball in a tie game with a minute 46 left. We're driving to kick the game-winning field goal. They don't win. The Chiefs are up 21-3, to could have kicked a field goal, 24-3, scored a touchdown, 28-3. to They end up blowing that lead in the second half. The Bengals come back from down 21-3. to I mean, so many things happen for them to get to this point. Plus, you don't have a lot of injuries. And yet, people are ranking the Bengals as... Number one, the the team that has the fourth best odds, they're tied to get to the Super Bowl and win it. And and secondly, I'm hearing people even today on like Good Morning Football talking about how Joe Burrow is the best quarterback in the AFC. Like it's done. Like it's determined he is the best quarterback in the AFC. And so this is the team that everybody needs to be looking out for next season. And I'm looking at the AFC and I'm looking at all those quarterbacks. That is the quarterback hub of the NFL. All the best guys are there. Um it's very. It's going to be a very competitive conference this upcoming season and beyond. Um, are you surprised that the odds makers have the Bengals and are expecting so much out of them this year? And I do want to pull up 
one quick uh, statistic on them. And that is that I'm looking at all of their games. They went seven wins and six losses. I'm looking at all their games this season, including the postseason. Seven wins and six losses in games decided by one score or less. If you look at the games that they won, where they won by more than one score, by more than seven points, you could say eight points is one score as well. They didn't win eight. They either won by seven or less, or they won by 14 plus, like two touchdowns plus. Those were two games against the Steelers, two games against the Ravens, a game against the Raiders, and a game against the Detroit Lions. That game against the Raiders, they were up by only three points uh, in the third quarter, heading into the fourth quarter, I believe, and then they pulled away and won by a lot of points late. Um, but the game against the Lions, of course, they won that by by uh, 23 points. But the, the majority of their wins by more than one score were against the Steelers and the Ravens, two divisional opponents, and they swept them and they won both by more than that. I mean, that's, going to be difficult to do something like that again this upcoming season. What do you think about the Bengals, this big picture for 2022? Uh, right. So we were making all the jokes about Jamar Chase receiving yards and all that. And it's like, all right, well, that that has to regress. There's no way it can it can stay up there, right? Uh, Joe Burrow's numbers in total outside of the numbers, right? Throwing the ball outside the numbers down the field are incredibly high. Those are going to come down just because it's really, really hard to do that year over year. It doesn't mean that they're bad at it now. It means that no matter how good they are at it, it's very difficult to, su- to sustain the level of production that they had. Uh, talked about defense earlier not being sticky. This defense, I think, really overperformed relative to expectations. That means it is not likely that they continue to overperform relative to expectations. It'd be nice if unit-wide defense was sticky, but it isn't. Uh, and that, that's for most catch-all metrics and most power rankings. And so it's unfortunate, but a lot of the stuff that that got the Bengals here is stuff that just over the course of time, we expect to be uh, high pe- high peaks, low valleys. We expect it to be regression. We expect it to be noisy. So yeah, it is not surprising that books have the Bengals this high on Super Bowl odds when they made it. Uh, and, and you know the public is currently a high visibility on them and loves them and is excited about them, whatever. Um, but I would be surprised if they do make it. Like right now, I'm looking at FanDuel. Uh, the Bengals have plus 2,000 odds. So they're just below the Niners. And they're tied with the Ravens. Uh, they're just above the Broncos, just above the Chargers, just above the Titans. Uh, for them to be tied with the Ravens and above the Chargers and the AFC to me is is wrong, right? Like right now, if you look at just AFC championship odds on FanDuel, uh, you have the Bengals at plus 1,000. They're third. The Bills and the Chiefs are way higher, plus 350 and plus 380. And then you have the Chargers at plus, uh, one, uh, plus 1,300, Ravens at plus 1,000, Colts plus 1,300, Browns plus 1,300, Broncos plus 1,300, Titans plus 1,300. So there's this like really, really thick tier right below the Bills and, and and the Chiefs. And then for whatever reason, sports books had the Bengals elevated just above that tier. It's because they were in the Super Bowl. They're no better than the other teams in that tier. They have no greater shots. It's not like, oh, you should take one of those teams. Like You can't take the Chargers plus 1,300 to win the AFC. I think that's a good bet, Justin Herbert, whatever. It's not that those teams are better than the Bengals. It's that, it's that that tier is just thick with good contenders, and there's no reason for the Bengals to be elevated beyond them. House, what is your take on the Bengals for next year? How how much of their performance this year and their ability to make the Super Bowl do you think was kind of like this storybook run and is unlikely to happen again? And how much do you think it's going to carry over to next season? The other thing that we have to consider, of course, is that this team obviously was forecast to win only six and a half games. They obviously won first place in the AFC North. That means they're going to be playing a first place schedule next year. So they don't get the benefit of playing the fourth place schedule like they were this season. 
I love the good people of Cincinnati. I have friends here in the Washington area that that are hail from Cincinnati and and have been rooting for the Bengal. And it was a wonderful ride. I think it's over. Um, (laughs) Unless. Well, the problem is you can't have a Joe Burrow on his ass 18 times over three games. He got sacked like, you know, nearly 20 times in three games. And we saw it with, with you know, uh, uh, in, a, in a very, you know, um, concerning and, and dramatic moment, he goes down and, and his knee gets pulled in a direction that looks abnormal. The no, if you keep... Letting your quarterback. Yeah, it's officially been announced as an MCL sprain, by the way. This is the problem, right? You can't let <laughs> yeah. the dude get hit that number of times and expect him to be upright through 18 games. So, well, that's going to be their priority, right? Of this course. Offseason. But yeah. it's it's February. I don't know what that uh, offensive line will look like um, come September. I expect that they'll it, it will be better, but it's not going to all of a sudden you know blossom into a top five offensive line in, in all of football. So there's no value whatsoever uh, on the Bengals. And it was fun, Sharpie. Somewhere in these last few weeks, um, we were having conversation about the best teams, and uh, you know you made the point that the Bengals are not the best team from the AFC um, and you thought it, probably from your perspective, it, it was the bills. And I was thinking a little bit over these last few days, you know, what, what would have been the, the best Super Bowl, right. In terms of which two teams from the conferences or the, were, were the best teams over the balance of that 18 games plus the playoffs. And I tend to agree with you on the bills, although it's still super hard for me to get over the last 13 seconds and the inability of the Bills to scheme up, um, you know, just a couple of defensive stops against the Chiefs. But Bills and Chiefs right there. And in the NFC, and this is the one I'm, I am they feel like is the most value, is San Francisco. Let me have San Francisco today. Let me have them tomorrow. Let me have them next week. Now, the only thing that would, uh, because I, I thought in all phases of the, the game, um, they were the most balanced. They they presented the biggest challenge. They were up 17 to 7 against the Rams going into the fourth quarter of the NFC championship game. Um, I don't know what they're gonna do about quarterback. So there's two two possibilities, right? Between now, February the 16th, and the beginning of September, the version of Trey Lance that they drafted, that they imagined that Kyle Shanahan has in his mind's eye, comes out, shows up, he's that guy, or they have a different quarterback that is capable of taking them on the run that they should go on. But for the for the for the Niners to be in that class of of odds, right? Based on on Ben, what what where were the what'd you say the the Niners were at? So right now for NFC Championship, it's Rams plus four four fifty, Packers plus six hundred, Cowboys plus six hundred, and then Niners plus six fifty. When you get to the Super Bowl, uh, it's seven hundred and seven fifty for Bills and Chiefs. Uh, 1,200 Rams, 1,300 Packers, 1,300 Cowboys, and then 1,500 Niners. Give me the Niners. 1,500 Niners. Out of all of those, those, those te- if I like them for the NFC, and I love that that um, you know opportunity on the Super Bowl as well. Okay, so I want to run through in our last few minutes here together, I want to run through some of the teams that exceeded or fell short of their win totals, and then the best ATS teams this year, the best dogs, best favorites, et cetera. Um, so I'm going to ask you, listen to my list. I'm going to go one at a time. Um, we'll give Ben the first one here. Give me a quick response to this, but I'm going to give you the teams that were that exceeded their win total the most or fell short of their win total the most. 
Name the team that surprised me the most, and then we're going to move on to ATS, do the same thing, and, and, and dogs and favorites. Okay, so from a win total perspective, there were seven teams that exceeded their win total by at least, and by win total, I mean, obviously, guys, we're talking about the preseason win estimation set by Las Vegas and how many games this team would win. There are a number of teams that exceeded it by at least two and a half games. There were seven of them. Those teams were the Cincinnati Bengals, the Dallas Cowboys, the Arizona Cardinals, the Green Bay Packers, the Las Vegas Raiders, the Philadelphia Eagles, and the Tennessee Titans. In terms of the teams that fell short of their win total by the most this season, there were six that fell short by over two games. The Baltimore Ravens, the Carolina Panthers, the Cleveland Browns, the Seattle Seahawks, the New York Giants, and the Jacksonville Jaguars. Of those 13 teams I mentioned, Ben, What's one team that stands out to you as being like more, most surprising that they either did so much better than we thought initially or so much worse? Yeah. And don't uh, say the Bengals because they just, you know, right. we are. Talking about I literally was going to open with like, obviously the Bengals are up there, but we've talked about them yep. a lot. And so I would say uh, the Titans being that high up there really surprised me. Uh, I was on the under for Titans win total before Derrick Henry went down. Right. And again, this goes back to how well can we predict defense? Uh, that Titans defense was really bad in 2020 and 2021, like that the previous COVID season. And then they made some improvements, but it was like, let's give Bud Dupree $18.5 million. Let's give Jack Rabbit Jenkins like $10 million, right? It, it felt like they shuffled some pieces around, but they didn't really get that much better. And I got into a lot of arguments with Titans fans uh, about whether or not that defense was better. I thought it wasn't. I took the under. It was. And they won 12 games. It's a testament to the Julio edition and to Vrabel and Todd Downing on that offense, but also the defense. Just, just, coalescing together and generating a really, really good front. Uh, so the Titans came in with a high win total, and I didn't think they could possibly hit that with without an elite quarterback. They far exceeded it. So that's kudos to them. Okay, so House, I'm going to go to you for the ATS team. So just give me a quick response as to which one of these surprises you the most. There were four teams that covered over 60% of their games this season. Um, and then I'll talk about the six teams that covered less than 40% of their games. The four teams that covered better than 60% of their games were the Bengals, obviously, the uh, Green Bay Packers, the Detroit Lions, and the Dallas Cowboys, who had the best record in the NFL against the spread 13 wins, four losses. The teams that covered it the least often, less than 40%, the Atlanta Falcons, the New York Giants, the New York Jets, both teams from New York. Sorry for everybody betting in New York now that's legal up there. Uh, the Chicago Bears, the Carolina Panthers, and the Jacksonville Jaguars. Which of those, either positively or negatively, is the most surprising to you at the end of the year? To me, it was the Cowboys, only because the Cowboys always have extra built in. They're the most public team uh, on planet Earth. And for them to to, to cover, it, it just further emphasizes how disappointing that performance was uh, in the playoffs. And really, you know, the, the only thing holding back the, the Cowboys to me is, is like an, an institutional discipline, get the, some, some, some legit coaching in place for that team. They have the talent on both sides of the ball. And even with public numbers inflating the, the, their, their, um, uh, spread every single week, they still went 13 and four that, that, is really uh, reflective of of talent on both sides of the ball. They just can't get their shit together when it matters. 
No doubt about it. For me, one of the ones that's most surprising is the Lions going 11 and 6 against the spread, even though they only went 3 13 and 1 straight up. That was a lot of fun just watching the Lions betting on some of their games. Uh, Big Lions guy over here. Loved the Lions this year. That was a lot of fun. I'll read off real quick. We don't have time to get into the details here, but the teams that were the best when they were underdogs. Okay, there were six teams that were that won at seven teams that won over 70% of their games when they were underdogs uh, against the spread that covered 70%. The Titans, the Bengals, the Cowboys, we've already mentioned these teams a lot. The Ravens, the Cardinals, the Packers, and the Rams. The interesting one that stands out to me here is the Ravens, who went five and one ATS as a dog. But when they were favored, went three and eight. That's 27%, the third worst team in the NFL covering spreads as a favorite. So you wanted to bet on the Ravens when they were dogs and bet on the fa- uh, Ravens when bet against the Ravens when they were favorites. So uh, and then the teams that were the best favorites in the NFL, the Cowboys, the Bears, the Eagles, um, those three were the best teams in the NFL. The only three teams that hit above 58 percent when they were favored. So you know, guys, we could go on and on. We'll have some more discussions. We're going to start pivoting into other shows, uh, but that'll do it for our season wrap-up show and Super Bowl recap. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks to Joe House and Ben Solak for joining me all season long. And for Mike Wargarn and Craig Holbrook for producing the show all season long. The Ringer Gambling Show will be back tomorrow for a final show on the Winter Olympics. And again on Friday to look at the weekend's college basketball games This channel will not be stopping. It keeps on churning out winners. Thank you to everybody for listening.